I hope that it's been a benefit to you um, studying through this passage, showing us how important it is that our life be built and centered upon the Word of God. Right? How essential the Word of God is to our Christian life. So we cannot take these things lightly. He is describing to us what a true believer should be like. Psalm 119, 161 says, Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous ordinances. Those who love your law have great peace, and nothing causes them to stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and your testimonies, for all of my ways are before you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your holy word. Lord, the word that you have given, Lord, that we might have life. Lord, that we might have your wisdom and know your will so that we can live a life that is pleasing to you. Lord, teach us today that without your word, we would be dead in our sins. Lord, without your word, there would be no life within us, that it is through your living and abiding word that you have granted to us eternal life. Lord, show us that our spiritual well-being, our eternal well-being, is dependent upon your word. Lord, that we would not take it lightly, that we would not neglect the reading and the hearing of the word of Christ, but that we would, that we, but rather that we would, with great diligence, attend to it. Lord, that we might know your will and that we might, Lord, come and be fed by you. So, Lord, we pray today that you would teach us and that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, in James 1.18, the apostle says there, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. The means that God used to bring a man from death to life is the word of truth. God's mighty power is invested in his holy word so that it is able to bring life out of death. It is able to bring salvation to those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Also, James 1.21. James 1.21 says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. We must receive with humility the word that has been implanted within us. And why is this so important? Because it is the implanted word that is able to save our souls. Without the word of God, there would be no salvation. There has never been a man and never will be a man who enters into salvation, who has the forgiveness of sins, who goes to the kingdom of God, who spends eternity in heaven with God forever, who did so apart from the word of Christ. Only by means of the living and abiding word of God can we enter into the joy of salvation. So we must see that our eternal destiny, the salvation of our souls and the souls of our children and grandchildren, is dependent on the word of Christ. This is what the prophet David knows. He knows and understands this, and this is why he speaks so highly of the word of God. 
He knows that his spiritual well-being, his eternal destiny is bound up with the word of God. Without God's word, he would still be dead in his trespasses and sins. But through God's word, he has been given life. And so he loves the word of God. He knows how essential it is for his spiritual and eternal well-being, so he clings to the word of the Lord. He wants to know what the Bible says. He wants his life to conform to the scriptures. He wants his doctrine to be consistent with the teaching found in the Holy Bible. He knows how miserable his life would be and how dreadful his eternal destiny would be apart from the word of God. So he loves it. He longs to know God's word. He wants it in his life more and more and more. Isn't this what we've seen throughout the course of Psalm 119? And this attitude will be true of all true believers. This is one of the evidences that we belong to God. Love for God's word. How can we love God if we don't love his word? It is impossible for that to be the case. The wicked don't care about the Bible. Nominal false Christians do not love the Bible. They can take it or leave it. It isn't that important to them. But those who understand their sin, who understand salvation, who understand the necessity of godliness, they will have a great love and desire for the word of God. And may this be our attitude as we approach the hearing of the word of the Lord. So let's go to Psalm 119, and we'll begin in verse 161 this morning. 161 says, Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. Here, this shows the greatness of the sufferings of the righteous man. Psalm 119 has spoken many, many times about his hardships, his sufferings, his persecutions, his many enemies that are coming against him. And it's not simply some rogue element within society, some madman here or there who's tormenting the prophet, but here even princes, even those who are armed with the power of the sword are persecuting him for no reason, right, without any cause. Princes have been given the power and authority from God for the purpose of punishing those who are evil and rewarding those who are good. This is the proper exercising of the authority given to the ruling authorities, to those who are occupying these high positions. Romans 13, Romans 13, verses 1 to 7, describe the attitude that the Christian should have toward the ruling authorities, but also describes what is the purpose of, of the ruling authority. What is their job? What is their function as it comes from God? Romans 13, verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you, you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. 
Render to all what is due to them. Tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. There, the very purpose of the ruling authority or the governing authority as instituted by God is to be a praise to good behavior and to be a punisher of evil or a punisher of those who do bad things, of bad behavior. They are to protect the innocent against those who commit evil. Well, in terms of society, the most innocent people in any kingdom, those who are most deserving of protection from the governing authorities are Christians, true believers, the righteous, who have devoted their lives to knowing and practicing the will of God. This is as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. He says, first of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We should pray for kings and those in authority, praying for their salvation. For if the king is converted, if those in authority become Christians, then they're going to use their office given to them by God to promote true justice and true righteousness in the land, with the result that we, the Christian church, will be able to live a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. True justice and true righteousness are in keeping with the Christian life. So we should be of one mind with the princes, with the ruling authority. If they are doing what God has called them to do, and we are doing what God has called us to do, then we should all be on the same page, practicing righteousness and justice in the land. That's the way it should be. But what is often the case? Those who have been granted authority by God to protect the righteous use that authority not to defend them, not to deliver them, not to protect them, but instead to harm them, to harass them, to persecute them, and to do evil toward them. And when this happens, it is a great evil, a grievous evil on the children of God, a severe form of persecution. One of the most, if not the most, severe form of persecution is when those who are instructed and equipped by God to promote justice and righteousness, who are to defend the righteous from the evil plots of the wicked when they are the ones who are hatching the evil plots, when they are the ones who are causing the problem and are the source of persecution against the righteous. Because if the source of persecution is some other citizen, then the righteous can appeal to the prince for justice. They have someone that they can go to, a human authority on earth given by God as a recourse against his enemy. But if the source of torment is the prince himself, then what can the righteous do? Where can they go on this earth? There is no recourse of justice on earth. They can then only appeal to God, only to God in heaven to deliver them. And this takes great faith. It is a severe test of their faith because there's nowhere for them to go on earth. They must instead entrust themselves to God and to God alone. The prince has the power of the state at his disposal. He can issue fines. He can confiscate property. He can throw people into prison. And even he has the power of the sword 
to execute people if he so desires. And there are times where princes, where the ruling authorities use the authority given to them by God not to do God's will, but instead to persecute and harass the children of God. And this is a very great evil. John 19, John 19, verses 10 and 11 John 19, verse 10. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So there, Pilate is bringing this to his attention because Jesus is not answering him. And he's reminding him, don't you know who I am? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you? And I have the authority to crucify you, to execute you. And yes, as a governing authority, he has that power. He has that position given to him by God. Now, Jesus reminds him, you would have no authority unless it had been given to you by God. So you need to use your authority the way that God requires you to use it. But many times the prince or the ruler doesn't do that. They use it according to their own whims, their own ideas, their own agenda, and not according to the will of God. Also, Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. This also, Daniel said to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego about his authority, his authority to kill them and to use his authority as the ruler to put them to death. Daniel 3.13 says that Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready... At the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, lyre, trigon, the psaltery, and the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. There, Nebuchadnezzar, the highest authority in the land, is using his authority to harass the righteous, to persecute these three men threatening them to cast them into a blazing, fiery furnace, a miserable death, because they will not commit a sin against God. Well, this is how it was for the prophet David as well. Princes were persecuting him without cause. We know that King Saul sought to put him to death. We know that his own son Absalom, who was a prince, sought to overthrow him and committed treachery against him. Even late in his life, when he was on his deathbed, one of his sons sought to usurp 
what his wish was, was that Solomon would be the king according to the will of God and not his other son, Adonijah. So all of these are princes or kings or rulers who are using their authority, using their influence in one way or another in order to persecute David. And this is for no reason. What had he done? What great sin did he commit? For example, what did he do against Saul that would cause Saul to persecute him? And that's why he says it's without cause. There's no reason for them to be doing this. Absolutely nothing. It was persecution without cause. It was actually insanity for Saul to be persecuting David because David was a very gifted and talented man. And he was using his gifts and talents in service to the king to benefit King Saul. Yet because of his righteousness, King Saul sought to kill him. And this is how it will be in all generations. Right, A true Christian will be the best citizen in the kingdom. The princes, the rulers, should want more Christians. They should want the Christians to have greater and greater influence. They should be seeking their counsel, asking them, what does the word of God say? Right, What should we do in this situation and that situation? And if they did, it would be beneficial to the kingdom. It would be beneficial to the king, to the other citizens, to everyone. It's going to be a benefit and an asset to all people. But because men love darkness rather than light, the princes will seek to devour their best citizens for no legitimate reason at all. Such as King Herod, whenever he executed, imprisoned, and then executed John the Baptist. And why did he do that? Because John was preaching against his adultery. But isn't it good if people aren't committing adultery in the land? Isn't that better for families? Better for the home? It's going to create a more stable society? It's going to be beneficial for everyone. But Herod hated it because he was speaking against his sin. And he wanted to commit his lewd acts of adultery. So he had that righteous man unjustly executed. We should not be shocked if we find this happening to us, if we find in some day, in some time, that the state turns against Christians, as is already happening in some places, even in our own country, this is happening in some places. Well, if David was persecuted by princes without cause, then are we above such treatment? Is this never going to happen to us? It surely can happen to us, and perhaps it will in our lifetime. So what do we need to do? Well, what did David do? He says, my heart stands in awe of your word. He wasn't discouraged. He wasn't overwhelmed. He didn't become despondent in despair because princes were persecuting him without cause. He understood the reality of the Christian life. Even though this was happening to him, his conviction and love for God's word was firm and resolute. He continued to stand in awe of the word of God. He would not forsake God's word because some petty prince was persecuting him without cause. Isn't that what we just read from Daniel chapter 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They stood in awe of the word of God. And even though the law of the king was in opposition to the law of God, they were in awe of God's law. Therefore, they would not violate it, even if it meant certain death from the king. They stood in awe of the word of God. And this is how we have to be. And if they take all of our property, then so be it. 
Isn't it better to go to heaven without property than to go to hell with it? If they throw us in prison, then so be it. Isn't it better to go to heaven having been imprisoned than to go to hell never going to prison? If they kill us, then so be it. It's better to go to heaven with our head chopped off or with whatever other form of execution they use than to go to hell and be preserved for what? A few more years in this life? Just as we sang this morning from Psalm 90, 70 or 80 years by reason of strength. It's better to part with this present world in order to gain the world to come if that is the will of God. And if princes persecute us without cause, we still must stand in awe of the word of God. 162. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. Here we see the prophet's zeal for the word of God. How much he loves it, how much he delights in it. How great is his rejoicing when he encounters the word of God. When he hears the word, when he reads the Bible, when some truth from scripture becomes clear to him, Right When there's some commandment and the righteousness that it prescribes is made manifest to him from interacting with the word of God. Whenever he is encountering God's word, he's rejoicing when he thinks about how great it is, how good it is, how true and righteous is the word of God. He sees the Bible as a vast treasure, as the spoils of war that the soldier receives after the battle. This is the word of God. The Word of God is like a mine filled with many vast treasures, spiritual treasures that make us wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, eternal riches that teach us the will of God. And when we go to the Bible with humility, seeking from God wisdom that we might know how to please Him, then God will give to us His treasures. He will open His treasury up to us and we will be able to go there and take more than we could ever imagine, right? More than we can even begin to possess we can have from God. Our efforts will not be in vain, for God will grant to us eternal spiritual riches from his word. And here, his rejoicing is likened unto a soldier who finds and receives the spoils of war. That brings great joy to the soldier because of all his hard work. Being the soldier fighting the war is, is a difficult task. It's hard work. It's life-threatening. It's very, very dangerous. And he is rejoicing because of the reward, the spoils that he has received from the war. Well, isn't this the way it is in our life as well? The Christian life isn't easy. The Christian life is dangerous. It's deadly. Princes are persecuting him without cause. We are soldiers of Christ. But God rewards us by giving to us his spiritual riches. Spiritual riches from his word, and God will not let our service be in vain, but rather he rewards richly those who seek him. Second Chronicles chapter 15. Second Chronicles 15. Verse 1 says, Now the Spirit of God came on Azariah, the son of Obed, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all of Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For many days Israel was without the true God, and without a teaching priest, and without law. But in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel. They sought him, and he let them find him. In those times there was no peace, 
to him who went out or him who came in, for many disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every kind of distress. But you, be strong and do not lose courage, for there is reward for your work. Don't lose courage. There is a reward for your work. And even now in this life, God is giving us his riches from his holy word. When we are seeking the word of God, seeking to know the will of God, seeking God in his word, we will be rewarded. God will give to us and open up his treasures to us from his word so that we rejoice in delight more than a soldier who finds great spoils of war. 163, I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. Here, the prophet does not have a ho-hum attitude towards falsehood. He's not examining and looking at the many false philosophies, the false ideologies of the world, admiring them, looking at them, seeking to find good in them, in these types of things. This is how many people behave today. They want to incorporate aspects of paganism, of false religions, of secular ideologies into Christian thought. They want to take these things that are outside the Bible and seek to merge them and syncretize them with the Bible, the wisdom of men with the word of God. But when a person does that, what happens? It pollutes and corrupts everything. When we mix and mingle the Bible with the thoughts of men, with the lies of men, with falsehood, then all we're left with is falsehood. It completely corrupts and pollutes everything so that there's nothing good at all. But this isn't what the prophet is doing. Whatever is false, he says, I hate it. I hate it. I despise it. He sees no good in it. He hates it with complete, utter hatred, and he wants nothing to do with falsehood. But he loves the word of God. The word of God reveals what is true. And he has this conviction that the Bible is the source, the only source of the wisdom of God. That if he wants to know what is true, he has to go to the Bible. And whatever topic the Bible addresses, what the Bible says is true, it is trustworthy, it is reliable, and it corresponds to reality. And then whatever out there contradicts what's in the Bible, he knows that it's a lie, it's falsehood, and he hates it, and he doesn't want anything to do with those things. He loves God's word because it teaches him the truth concerning all things. And then the corresponding to this love is hatred for everything false, whatever contradicts and undermines the word of God. These twin virtues must be found in us. And they are inseparable. Love for God's word and hatred for lies. We must have both of these. They always go together hand in hand. It is impossible for someone to love God's word who at the same time is indifferent to lies or who has a positive view toward falsehood and is looking for good in those things. But there are many Christians many who claim to be Christians, who say that they love God, who claim to love the word of God, but they will not reject falsehood. They will not speak out against falsehood. And even many who will seek to incorporate 
falsehood with Christian truth. They want to merge evolution and the Bible. Socialism with the Bible. Feminism with the Bible. Critical race theory with the Bible. Psychology with the Bible. Humanism, Pelagianism with the Bible. They want to take those things and incorporate them into Christian thought and say that these things don't contradict the Bible. We can actually take these philosophies, these ideas, these ideologies that come from outside the Bible, that come from men, and we can use them as tools to help us interpret and understand the Bible. This is what they claim. They say that they don't undermine the Bible. They help us understand the Bible more clearly. But what actually happens? When you incorporate, for example, evolution with the Bible, what happens to creationism? It completely disappears. It completely destroys it. It ruins it because it cannot be incorporated. It cannot compromise. It cannot be mixed and mingled with the Word of God. So that what you are left with is a lie and many other lies that proceed from that lie. And this is why we can't have this attitude. We must reject this approach. We must love the Word of God and hate every false way. And anything that contradicts the Bible must be rejected. Not mildly, but with hatred and complete disgust and detestation. We must promote and champion Christian hatred. Christian hatred. Righteous hatred, hatred of lies as a Christian virtue. Where is this at in the churches today? No one has this. They have this uh, conciliatory approach to lies and falsehood. Well, they're good people and they mean well. And they do a lot of good. So we'll overlook all of the lies that they promote, like evolution, like psychology, like free will, like antinomianism. Because they're good people. They're good people and they've done a lot of good. No, but we can't be like this. We have to reject it. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to 18. This is the way the Apostle Paul approaches these issues. As issues of light and darkness, truth and lies. Right? And you can't accommodate these things together. God and Satan. Can we mix and mingle God and Satan? No. How, how can we mix the word of God and the word of Satan together? And think that these two things can be joined together and be in unison and harmony with one another. It's impossible for that to be the case. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said. I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. This is what the prophet David knows and understands. He doesn't want to walk with lies and falsehood. He wants to walk according to the word of God, and he does not want to be in harmony or unison or agreement with those who are promoting lies and falsehood. It says in Proverbs 13:5, a righteous man hates falsehood, but a wicked man acts disgustingly and shamefully. It is disgusting and shameful for someone to hold hands 
with Satan, to hold hands with lies, to accommodate lies with the Bible. We must reject that and hate all falsehood. 164, seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous ordinances. Here, seven times a day, he says, I praise you, meaning continually, constantly, all throughout the day, he is praising God all day long because the word of God is on his mind and it's on his lips. All the time, he's thinking about the word of God, so he's praising God all the time, all day long, because of his righteous ordinances. This is like Proverbs 24, 16. It says, For a righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in time of calamity. There, again, the meaning is not that the righteous man literally falls seven times, and that's all that he falls, but he means it in the sense that no matter how many times the righteous man falls, what will he always do? He will rise again, because God will not let him fall to his own ruin and destruction as many times as necessary. When the righteous man falls, when he sins, he will be renewed again to repentance. He will rise again and he will seek to overcome his sin continually throughout the course of his life. In the same way, the righteous man praises God seven times a day, all the time, constantly throughout the day because of God's righteous ordinances. We remember from Psalm 1, Psalm 1 verse 2, that one of the characteristics of the blessed man is that he meditates on the law of God. And how long does he meditate? When does he meditate on God's law? It says day and night, meaning all the time. All the time he's meditating on the word of God. He's constantly thinking about the Bible. He's musing about the righteous ordinances of God. And as he thinks about the Bible, what is going to be the natural result? His lips are going to open up. It leads him to praise God for his righteous word. Whether that be some passage he has memorized that's on his mind, a sermon that he recently heard, something he read that morning in his Bible reading, or whatever he's experiencing and encountering throughout the day, right? Because this is what happens as well. As we go throughout life, we experience things, and we're looking at life, we're looking at the world, we're seeing things, and then we want to see those in relationship to the Word of God. So the Word of God comes onto our mind. However it is that the Bible is on his mind, when he meditates on it, the result is praise to God. He is reminded again and again and again of the righteousness of God's Word, of its truthfulness, its justice, its goodness. He sees how valuable it is for him, and it leads him to praise God. Because with the Bible, he's able to look at the world in his own life and everything with reality, right? With truth, with righteousness, not with the lies that come from the world. 165 says, those who love your law have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. Those who love God's law have great peace. Now here by love, he means those who want to know what the Bible says. They want to study the Word of God, not for mere intellectual curiosity. There are some people who are like that, who want to read the Bible or they want to talk about theology or doctrine, but it's just to tickle some intellectual curiosity that they have. But they have no intention of obeying it. Here, those who truly love the Word of God, 
They want to study and talk about the Bible for the purpose of obedience. They want every belief they have to be founded on the Word of God, consistent with the teaching of the Bible. They want their life and the way that they live day in and day out to be consistent with the righteous commandments of God's Word. When this is true of a man, his love for God's Word will lead him to conform his life, his beliefs, his values, his goals, his pursuits with the Word of God. He will have great peace. He will have peace before God. His conscience will be at ease because he will not be living in open rebellion against God. It is this love for God's word which will be clear evidence to him of his calling and his election, that he has indeed been reconciled to God through the death of his son, that he has the fatherly kindness and favor of the Lord upon him, that God is for him, so who can be against him? And this will reassure him, give him peace, give him comfort throughout the time of his sojourning. He has great peace, for he is persuaded that his person and his life are both acceptable and pleasing to God. Then his conscience will not condemn him, but instead his conscience will assure him of his standing before the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3. And it says there in verses 13 to 17. 1 Peter 3, 13. It says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who refile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if, you, if God should will it, that you suffer for doing what is right, than for doing what is wrong. There, he's speaking to them of suffering for the sake of righteousness. And when you're suffering... When you're being illly treated in this way, especially when it's coming from the ruling authorities, because typically the governing authorities, who do they punish? Evildoers. That's the ones that they should be punishing. Well, we'll be tempted to think, well, maybe we're doing something wrong. Maybe we are evil people. But if we're suffering for the sake of righteousness and we're keeping a clean conscience before God, then we will be convinced and persuaded that no, We're not in the wrong. We're in the right and they're in the wrong. And I have a completely clean conscience before God. I have peace that even though I'm in prison, even though they're treating me like this, doing all these evil things to me, that I've done nothing deserving of this, but I have a clean conscience before God. And this will give us peace. As it says in Acts 24, 16, the Apostle Paul says, In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. A blameless conscience is the fruit of love and obedience to the word of God. 
when we love God's word and we obey God's word, then our conscience will be blameless both before God and men. Our conscience will not condemn us, but will assure us that we belong to God and then the peace of God will overwhelm and flood our hearts and our mind. Also, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 says in verse 13, 1 John 3, verse 13. Again, the same situation. The same situation that was happening in Psalm 119. We read earlier from Daniel chapter 3. This happened to Jesus in John 19. We just read 1 Peter chapter 3. Now we're reading 1 John chapter 3. All of them are teaching the same truth. It's the same essential truth in relationship to persecution, suffering for the sake of righteousness, but having peace and being assured before God that this is not unnormal, it's not unnatural, it's not contrary to the Christian life, but this is the way it will be. And when it happens, we have no reason to be ashamed and no reason to doubt the love of God for us. 1 John 3.13 Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this. He laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us love not with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. There, the godly life that results from loving God, loving God's word, loving God's people, gives peace to his children, gives peace to them. And when this is true of a man, then nothing can cause us to stumble. He will not falter, even if he is imprisoned, even if princes persecute him without cause, he will be reassured in his heart that his life is pleasing to the Lord even if the entire world falls to ruin around him. This is the way it is for the righteous. Even in the midst of hardships, sufferings, persecutions, they have great peace because their conscience does not condemn them, but rather it reassures them that they belong to God, that God loves them, that God is for them, therefore who can be against them? This in contrast to the wicked, who even in the midst of their prosperity, even in the midst of worldly comforts and ease, they are tormented in their conscience. They have no true lasting peace because their life and their person are in opposition to God. And that's why it says in Proverbs 28.1 that the wicked flee when no man pursueth. Even when no one's pursuing them, they're fleeing. And why are they fleeing? Because they have a guilty conscience. They know the wrath of God is coming for them, and their conscience condemns them even in this life. 166 and 167. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, 
and do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. Here, he waits with eager expectation for the full, final enjoyment of salvation. Right Now, it is true that a believer, and he is a believer, that he does possess salvation in his life, already now in this present life. But the salvation is still waiting for its completion. When David is writing this, he's not been made perfect yet. He's still a man who still has the flesh and is still waiting for the full final state of salvation to be manifest and revealed in his life. And that's why he says he hopes for God's salvation. He's not denying the reality of salvation already within him, but he's longing for more of that salvation, for that salvation to be completed on the day of Christ. The good work that God begins will be completed when Christ returns. The completion of salvation awaits a future date. When the body is resurrected on the day of Christ, then salvation will be complete. When both body and soul are conformed perfectly to the image of Christ, and we are always with the Lord for all eternity. And we are saved in this hope, right? With this hope set before us, the hope of full final redemption, the redemption of our body. This is as it says in Romans chapter 8, 24. He says, for in this hope we are saved, for a hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Who hopes for what he sees? You don't hope for it because you have it. Well, he's hoping for salvation because he's talking about the full enjoyment of salvation that will be true in the life to come. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Philippians 1.6 says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. God has begun the good work of redemption in them. This began at their conversion, but that redemption has not yet been perfected. It has not yet been brought to completion because the body of death still remains. However, he knows, he is confident that God has begun this work of redemption, it is impossible that he will fail to bring it to his completion. He will fulfill it on the day of Christ, and he will keep fulfilling it until it is perfected. Also, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 speaks of this reality, this dual reality that already we possess salvation, but we are still waiting for it, in a sense. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. It says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as of yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Right? We are God's children now, he says. Right? Not in the future, but now. We are at that now, currently in this life. At the moment of salvation, we are adopted into the family of God. 
but the ultimate glory of the children of God has not yet been revealed. And when will it be revealed? When will it appear? When he appears. When Christ is revealed from heaven and we see him as he is, then we will be transformed in an instance into his image. We will be just like him, meaning we will be perfectly righteous. There will be no more sin in us, no more death, but perfectly pure and righteous just as he is. And whoever has this hope of perfect purity, what does he do in this life? He purifies himself as he is pure. Since this is what we will be, since we have the hope of full final salvation, then the way we should live in this present life is a pure life, an upright life, a godly life. That's what we should do. Should we live in sin now? Should we say, well, we're not going to be able to sin in the life to come, so we better enjoy it while we can. We've got to have a good time, right, while we can. Aren't there many people who think like this? Even many people who claim to be Christians who think like this? But does a true Christian think like that? Of course not. A true Christian, he wants to be completely rid of his sin. He wants it to be completely abolished even now in this life. He longs for, he cannot wait for the day when he will be made perfectly righteous, when he will be pure as he is pure, and so he strives for that. That's what he desires. That's what he wants. He wants to obey God perfectly. And that's why in Psalm 119, 166, he hopes for God's salvation, and then he says, and I do your commandments. Because I hope for your salvation, I do your commandments, and my soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. We should keep the commandments of God, not as the basis of our salvation, but as the result of our salvation, and because of the hope of what we will be in the life to come. In the life to come, will we obey God's commandments, or will we break God's commandments? We will obey them. So everyone will be a legalist in heaven one day, right? According to how most people define legalism. Because we will perfectly keep the commandments of God in heaven. The end of our salvation is our perfection. And even though we can't obtain that now in this life, we should still strive for it. That should be the goal that is set before us. That's the way that we should live in this present life. Obedience to God by doing his commandments. That's what it says in this verse. Since he hopes for salvation, he obeys God. His soul keeps God's testimonies from the heart. He loves the word of God because it shows him how to live the life of heaven even while he's still on the earth. And that's what he wants. He aspires for the heavenly life. And while he's on this earth, he's going to strive for it as hard as he can. 168, 168, I keep your precepts and your testimonies, for all of my ways are before you. Here, the prophet states what is true of his life. He keeps God's precepts and God's testimonies. Now, he's not saying this in a bragging way. He's not saying this in his own strength, in his own pride. Of course, he's not doing that. He's simply stating what is true. This is what is true of his life. And can it be said of a man that he keeps God's commandments, that he keeps God's precepts and God's testimonies? Of course it can, because that's what he's saying right here. Now, he does not mean that he keeps them perfectly, 
And he does not mean that he keeps them in his own strength apart from the grace of God. But as a believer who has the grace of God, what is true of him is a consistent desire and practice of righteousness. So that it is truly said of him that he keeps God's commandments. And it must be said of us as well. This must be true of us. Genesis 26.7, speaking of Abraham, describes him in this way as well. Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. This is God's own testimony concerning Abraham, that this is what was true of his life. From his conversion onward, he obeyed God. He kept God's charge. He kept God's commandments, his statutes, his laws. Not perfectly, not apart from the grace of God, of course not. But with the grace of God, this is what was true of him. Also, Job 1 verse 1 says, this is again God's testimony concerning Job. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. This is what was true of Job. He was a blameless man. He feared God. He was upright. He turned away from evil. Well, what motivated these holy men to live upright, godly lives? To want to obey the commandments of God. Well, he tells us here in 168. Notice what he says. All my ways are before you. It's the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. The knowledge that God sees all of our ways. That every thought, every inclination of the heart, every word that we say, every deed that we commit is all open and laid bare before God and we will answer God for every single thing. This knowledge that God sees all that he does causes him to want to obey God, to want to keep the commandments of God. It says in Hebrews 4.13, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have to do. And Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. This knowledge that nothing is hidden from his sight, served as a bridle to keep him always crucifying his flesh and cultivating godliness in his life, with the result that he kept the commandments of God. There has never been and there never will be a man who obtains true godliness, who truly keeps God's commandments, who does not have this on his heart and mind. The omniscient inspection of God the all-seeing eye of God that sees all that we do, all of our ways are before Him. This knowledge is necessary for the killing of sin and the promoting of righteousness. And it must be on our mind. It must be in our hearts. We must live like this, with God always before us, that He sees everything that we do. He knows everything that we say. And our life must be measured in way against His Word, against His law, His commandments, His precepts. And we should say, Lord, I know that you see all that I do. So I want everything that I do, everything that I say, everything in my heart, everything in my mind. Right? I want it to be pleasing in your sight. I want it to conform to your word because I'm your slave. And I have to answer to you. You are my master. So I want my life to conform to your word because I know that you see all that I do. And I know that I will stand before you one day and I will give 
an answer to you for every deed that I have done. So conform my life to your word. This should be our prayer, and this should be our pursuit. We should pray, Lord, conform my life to your word so that my life is pleasing to you, and then our pursuit should be to go and to do all that we can to conform our life to the word of God. By getting rid of sin, whatever is sinful, we need to crucify and get rid of, and then doing those things that promote true godliness and righteousness. And may this be our desire. May this be what is true of us, so that just as it was said of David, of Abraham, of Job, that they were righteous men, that they were blameless, that they kept the commandments and the precepts of God, may that be true of us as well, that we too are righteous men and women who keep the commandments of God. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. It says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word, Lord, which gives light to those who are blind. Lord, it gives wisdom to those who are simple. Lord, it makes straight paths for us so that we might not stumble and fall. Lord, we know that when we are living according to your word, Lord, it is a smooth and straight path. Lord, there's nothing there that will cause us to be ruined and destroyed, but only those things that are good and pleasing in your sight. Father, we want our life, Lord, to conform to your word. Lord, we want to be assured that our person and our life is pleasing in your sight. And so, Father, we pray that we would examine ourselves, Lord, to make sure and to see that we are in the faith. Lord, knowing that apart from Christ, none of us can be acceptable to you. But it is only through him, through his death and resurrection, that we can be reconciled to you. But Lord, show us that when we truly have been reconciled to you through the death of your son, Lord, you do not leave us in our sin, but you deliver us out of our sin. And that, Lord, you are increasingly sanctifying us and perfecting this salvation that you have begun, Lord, until we receive the full and final realization of it. So, Father, we ask that you would do your work within us. Lord, that you would continue to progress our salvation so that we obtain, Lord, more and more maturity. Lord, that our life is conformed more and more to the image of your Son, that there is more godliness and more righteousness in us. And Lord, may it be said of us, just as it was of Abraham, of Job, of David, that they were righteous men, Lord, that kept your word, who walked in your ways. Lord, give to us a greater love for your word. Lord, may we love it more than riches, Lord, more than gold and silver or jewels, Lord, more than money, Lord, more than the things of this world. Lord, seeing that it is such a benefit, Lord, for our salvation, Lord, that it is the only way that we can enter into the kingdom of God. Lord, we pray that we would praise you seven times a day. Lord, that we would always be thinking about your word. And Lord, when we do, it would cause us to break out into praise for you. Lord, not merely in our own personal experience, but Lord, when we're with others as well, that we would be praising you to other men. Lord, speaking to them about your word and what it says and what it has revealed to us. 
So, Lord, may we shout from the rooftops, Lord, the greatness of your word and your testimonies. Lord, how good your judgments are. And, Lord, we pray that we would love your word, love the truth, and love righteousness. And, Lord, everything that is false that comes from this world, Lord, the lies of the devil, Lord, that those things would be detestable to us, utterly repugnant, and that we would want nothing to do with them. Lord, keep us from the spirit of relativism, of pragmatism, Lord, that is so prevalent in the churches today, where people will take and seek to mix and mingle truth and lies and then act like it's not a big deal. Lord, act like you are fine with us doing these things. Lord, may we never have that attitude, but always want to know what your word says and that we would believe it in contrast to the lies and that we would hate everything that is false. Lord, give to us that conviction that we might walk in your ways and do those things that are pleasing in your sight. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.